so glad that you're here. If we haven't met, my name's Taylor. I'm the lead pastor here. Soak that you're with us this morning. And we are officially making our exit, guys, from our first ever in the history of this church marriage series. It's been so much fun. So grateful to have you along the journey. I hope it's been helpful. And we're going to end with a bang today, everybody, because uh, that's what we're all about here at New Song. And uh, we're going to ask some really big questions. And today I want to get into really the role of husband in the family and the role of wife in the marriage in the family unit. And so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get into some really great stuff today. And I don't know if you know this, but God is very opinionated on how marriage is meant to operate, on how the Christian marriage is how it's supposed to function, on how the husband functions in the marriage as the husband, and how the wife functions in the marriage as the wife. And here's the idea. We cannot, we cannot preach a series called Till Death, the marriage that you long for, unless we get back to God's design for the marriage. And so that's what we're really going to step into today. What does it look like to be a biblical husband? What does it look like to be a biblical wife? To do that, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me there. And this really is an incredible chapter all about relationships. It's a masterclass on relationships. It really is a masterclass on marriage. And Paul starts out with this big idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? So as he starts to begin to nuance out, like, okay, here's how to have good, healthy relationships. The big first idea that he comes and he brings to the table is, listen, you gotta imitate God. And how many of you know that kids just end up looking like mom and dad, right? Yes or no, right? Like that tends to be the case. And he's saying, imitate God as beloved children. Now, when Marissa and I got together, we decided that it was gonna be best for everybody if our kids came out looking and acting and living more like her than me. And so far, that has not been the case. My gene pool has been more aggressive than hers. And uh, we wanted to do that for obvious reasons. I'm a disaster. She's incredible. But that's just the reality, guys. Kids end up looking like mom and dad. And so Paul is saying, if you want to have healthy relationships in life, in marriage, and in, in family, in the workplace, healthy friendships, you have to start here with this idea of actually reflecting the nature and the character of the God in whose image you possess. You are created to reflect him to the world around you. So it looks like walking in love. Now, why this is so important is because some of you, you walk in bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, anger, uh, all sorts of stuff. And Paul's like, listen, you have to offload that. You have to learn how to reflect God's character and his nature to the world around you. How are you gonna do that, man? You gotta recognize you're a son. Like, can I just hit you right over the head with some good news? If you are a Christian, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are stamped with his approval, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. He loves you. True or false parents have to earn mom and dad's love. In a healthy home, absolutely not the case. Our kids popped out. They're pooping all over the place. They're puking all over the place. Marissa and I'm madly in love with them. You're the exact same way in relationship with God. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And in marriage, unless you learn to live connected to that sonship identity, you are going to be looking to your spouse to love you perfectly, to satisfy you perfectly, to serve you perfectly, and you're always going to be left wanting. Why? Because God has left that longing in you that you would find it in him. 
And so what happens when you live into this sonship identity and you say, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm loved by the father, I am treasured in the heart of God, you stop to look to your spouse to love and serve and satisfy you perfectly. Why? Because God loves you perfectly. God serves you perfectly and God satisfies you perfectly. And so we have to start there. And Paul's like, listen, this is what it's built on. Healthy marriage, healthy relationships is built on happiness. Two of you are awake, right? No, it's not. He doesn't say that. He says, listen, healthy relationships are built on what? Sacrifice. What's the standard? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's the idea here? Healthy marriage, healthy relationship is built on sacrifice. And really, my marriage got so much better when my my wife really realized that. But, you know, so I'd encourage you, if you need to, do the same thing. But here's the idea. So many of you, you got married with these disastrous expectations right? It was going to be like the notebook. You're going to be making out in the rain all the time and you're going to marry Ryan Gosling. And then you ended up with Larry, the cable guy. What are you saying? You're saying, and I heard like three or four women laugh there. So guys, I'm sorry if that's you, but there's hope for you. Okay. There's hope. Uh, You can change. You can change. You can get more in the Ryan Gosling category, start eating well, sleeping well, and uh, work out a little bit. It'll be good for the whole family. But right, that's the idea is you, we end up getting married with these disastrous expectations. We put our ourselves at the center of the marriage and we expect this person to love and serve and satisfy us completely and of course that's completely upends God's good design listen I want to start with this ridiculous idea and say this I need you to pay attention because this is crazy this is probably the craziest thing I've ever said from this stage and I really believe it I can solve right now for you 100% of the issues in your marriage right now with one word I really can. This is, this is worth the price of admission, ladies and gentlemen, which is free, so you get what you paid for. But, you know, like, this is the way, I can say, whatever dysfunction you brought into the room in the context of your marriage, whatever the fight was on the way, that, the, the way to church that you were fighting about, which I'm glad you showed up anyways, in the middle of it, right? Whatever the dysfunction is, the brokenness of your marriage, the current conflict that you are finding yourselves in the middle of, I can solve all of those issues with one word. You wanna know how to make it go away? One word, die. Really, that's it. You, you die to self. You take on the nature and the character of Jesus. Listen, how many of you know Jesus is irresistible? You get two people, imperfect people, living together to the best of their ability by the grace of God, growing in their individual reflection of the character and the nature of Jesus. That is the marriage that you long for. And we don't do that, why? Because if I do that, if I sacrifice, if I give, my fear innately as a man is what? That it's not gonna be reciprocated. But here's the big idea. Idea. Here's the thing, guys. If both parties in the marriage live into that vision, is there any lack? No, there's none. In fact, you get everything that you ever wanted, that you've demanded, that you've expected when you just begin to live into God's vision here. Of, you, know, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take myself out of the center of the equation here. I'm gonna take myself at the, out of the center of this relationship in this marriage. We're gonna put Jesus there. I'm gonna stop expecting you to love and serve and satisfy me completely. And I'm gonna let Jesus do that. And then I can give of myself freely to you and sacrifice for you. And so now we gotta nuance out. Okay, so what does this actually look like? So this is the big idea of how he frames the entire chapter. And then we get down to verses 20 through, 22 through 24. And he begins to talk about, okay, so this is, 
is, this is what this looks like in the context of the Christian marriage. How is the man gonna reflect and imitate God? How is the woman, the wife, going to imitate God? Now, this is what Paul says, and, and you have so much baggage with this passage, okay? So just let's read it, and we're gonna let God's word be God's word, and then we're gonna spend the rest of our time nuancing this. This is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh-oh, don't throw anything. Give me a second. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Fellas, how would you like my job right now? Okay, so we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna make our way through this. It's gonna be really good. But here's the idea. First thing that we gotta recognize right off the bat is what? Men and women are different. Now, there is so much conflict that happens over this, this passage. There's so much debate that happens over this passage. There's so much misunderstanding that happens over this passage. In fact, if you Google it, don't do it because your computer will literally explode. So what is actually going on here? The first thing that Paul is pointing out is what? Men and women are different. I don't know if you knew that. Our culture seems to not understand this, but men and women are innately different, that there are differences for, of men and women. Listen, I've got two kids. It's amazing that we need to do a class on this. I've got a boy and I've got, I've got a girl. They are totally, completely different. My four-year-old son, I love him so much. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna go break some stuff. I'm gonna roll around in the mud. I'm gonna stick it down my pants and it's gonna be a good time. And my daughter, she's two. She's just this perfect little angel child, came out saved, you know, and she just wants to cuddle with daddy and she wears pigtails. And she's all about strolling a little totally, completely different, right? And that's what Paul is getting at. Not one is better than the other, y'all. It's not guys are better than girls and girls are better than boys or whatever. It's literally, they both possess individually the, the, nature, the image of God. They are co-equal in value, in worth, in dignity, deserving of respect. God is stationed man and wife next to one another, side by side. This is co-leadership, singular headship. And this is, of course, where where the feminists and the chauvinists get it wrong because what happens in the Genesis account? God creates Adam. He pulls Eve from his side and stations her next to him as helper. God creates Adam first as head, Eve as helper, but this is side to side. Do you guys see that? We have to get this because the feminists will say what? Well, listen, you guys, listen, you guys suck, right? Like you're a disaster, you're, which is true, we are, but we'll talk about that and Jesus is gonna iron us out. But the feminists will say, men need to take a back row seat. You're everything that's wrong with society. Society, you screwed everything up, and so now women are gonna fix it. Women are now the, the savior of the world, right? That, and that's where the feminist is wrong. But also the chauvinist is wrong, because what does the chauvinist say? The chauvinist says, no, it's men out in front, and women need to take a back seat and shut up and stay in the kitchen, barefoot, pregnant, cooking dinner, right? That's where they need it. That's what the chauvinist is saying, and this is where the Bible is like, no, listen, y'all, you completely missed it. It's co-equal in dignity, value, and worth, different but complementary in role and function. This is right hand and left hand working together to display the beauty of the character and the nature of God in the Christian home. So we see in verse 23, Paul says this, we gotta talk about this, that the husband is the head. 
right? So what is this all about, right? Because that sounds really offensive and, 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 and like a denigration to women and morally regressive and a hyper patriarchal view of masculinity and marriage and family. So what is all of this about? Let me tell you first, let's start about talking about what it doesn't mean. So what this does not mean, men, is that you are the boss. It doesn't mean that you're the CEO of the family. It doesn't mean that you get to show up and just waltz in the house and expect everybody to grovel at your feet. And it's all about building your own kingdom with your loyal subjects, your wife and your children to attend to your every needs. This is not about getting what you want all the time. Fellas, this is not about a sandwich, okay? That's the reality. It's not about that, right? It's not, and in fact, here's the thing. Disgusting and repulsive and racked by sin, men have taken this passage horrifically out of context and used it to subjugate and to abuse women, And we have seen that happen here. This isn't you because, again, you're here, you're in church, you want to get better, you're a man of integrity, you're a man following Jesus. You might know this guy, and if you do, he needs a kick where the sun don't shine. You know what I mean? Take that one to the bank and make it happen, okay? And just bring this, just lovingly rebuke him into serving and loving well. But that's the reality, right? I've seen that, we've seen this happen. I have had women to me over the past several years. They've come and said, hey, listen, my husband, he beats me down with words. He he, he nags, he just talks down to me. He tells me I'm trash, I'm garbage. I'm fat and I'm ugly. He takes this passage and he says that this is why I have to watch pornography with him because husbands are, wives are supposed to submit to their, their husbands, right? Is that, a, is that a right or wrong interpretation of what's going on here, everybody, right? Very, that's actually called abuse. That is so far removed from the heart of God. I don't even know what to do with that. Anything that looks like that is sin and it needs to be repented of. Right? And, and, and the reality is, guys, we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account on how we interpreted passages like these because it filters out into how we live in the context of the home and the family. So let's talk about this. What does it actually, what does it mean? What does it mean? What is this idea of headship all about? First and foremost, it carries a tone of responsibility and of sacrifice and of being a worthy man. Now, let me just say this to you young guys. I am so glad that you're here. We've got this growing community of young single men here at this church and I love it and I just wanna champion you Listen, you are the hope for tomorrow. You literally are the hope for our nation, for the Western world, for our region, for the family. You can shift everything around. You literally are so jacked full of potential as a young guy. You probably don't, you you know, if you stepped into God's vision of what he can do through you, you wouldn't even know what to do about it. And here's the idea, right? You've got two choices. You can listen to culture and allow culture to form you into a certain type of man, or you can listen to and follow. Follow Jesus, and he's gonna call, he's gonna form you into becoming a completely different type of guy, a, a different kind of man. Now, here's the idea: our modern society has no idea what to do with young men. Would you agree with that? We just don't know what to do with them. We don't know what to do. And so, what we've done actually in the Western context is historically, traditionally, there was two stages for any man's life: he was a boy, and then he was a man. And so, then what we decided to do over the last couple hundred years, hundred years or so, actually, probably a little bit less than that, is we decided to interject this center zone, this transitionary period between boyhood and manhood called what? Adolescence, 
right? And, and so, and this is, and it's delayed boyhood. And, and, and adolescence looks like this. It looks like, you know, you grow up in mom and dad's house, you go to college, you get a useless degree that you never use just so you can go and have a good social party experience. You go broke after you graduate. So you move back in with mom and dad where you drink your beer out of a sippy cup in the basement. You play your video games and mommy cooks you, you know, your pizza bites and brings them down to you several times a day. And ultimately you're told at that point, then what you can do if you want to graduate beyond that is you can find a girlfriend who's going to mother you and she'll roll you around in a stroller in the mall while you pick up your Jordan 1s, right? That's, that, that's the, the, the modern term for that is called adolescence. Here at New Song, the technical term that we use is stupid, okay? And so here's the idea. What that's going to do, what that has done, guys, and this is at the root issue of everything that's gone wrong in our nation is it trains men to abdicate responsibility. It trains men to let government take the role of father and of husband and of head. And how has that gone for us the last couple years, ladies and gentlemen, good or bad? Right? It's been very bad, right? And if you would question that, come up after the service and we can have a little bit more of a candid conversation. I would love to help you see that. But that's the reality, right? It hasn't gone well where there is a void. Satan fills with the counterfeit. There is a void of fathering. There is a void of responsibility, men taking responsibility. Let me just speak to you teenagers for a second. Listen, where your friends are off partying, doing stupid stuff, they're drinking, they're doing drugs. I know because I was that guy, right? You need to make a different decision. You need to say, listen, I'm going to be a man even now at 15 years old who takes responsibility for himself, who takes responsibility for the family, who takes responsibility in the church, who takes responsibility in society, and I'm actually going to do something beneficial for the world. You need to learn how to be that guy. Culture's not going to make you that man. Jesus is. And you know what Jesus says? Follow me. Follow me, follow me. You know, here's, here's what's interesting. I was thinking about this. Did you know that scholars will tell us that the disciples of Jesus, 12 dudes, 12 young guys, you know how old they were? Teenagers, right? Teenagers. Teen, I mean, think about that. He hands, he hands the greatest point of responsibility off to a 17-year-old punk kid, right? He's like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna use you to accomplish my, my purposes in the world. I'm gonna use you to usher in the kingdom of God. I'm passing the keys off to you. You're gonna do great things, right? And we don't even hold our young dudes accountable to turn the stove off when they make their dumb stuff, right? Like, I mean, like, it's crazy. Here's Jesus Christ saying, listen, you need encouragement as a young man. You need responsibility, and I'm gonna give you a whole lot of both, right? And this is what Jesus does when you follows him, follow him. He puts responsibility on you. He doesn't let you skate underneath the radar and blame other people and government and whatever. He puts responsibility on you, but he also puts encouragement in you. And he says, you can do this. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so we have to be worthy men. It's first about responsibility. We got to take responsibility for ourselves, for the family, for the church, for the kingdom of God. This idea of headship in the biblical languages, there is all these different words that are surrounding this idea of covenant. Uh, as far as how the man interacts in the marriage and the home as head, I think one of the best words to capitalize on this is the word said in the Hebrew. And uh, it's this idea of love. And it's been translated in several different ways. Covenant love, loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, devotion, commitment, loyalty.
loyalty and reliability. My kids have this uh, Jesus storybook that's an incredible resource for all you parents. They love it. We all, we all love it. Does an incredible job of, of taking the biblical narrative and communicating in a way to kids that makes sense. And how the writer talks about this idea of covenant love of Hesed is it's a never ending, never giving up, always and forever love. That that is what headship is all about. In fact, in the biblical, uh, in Bible days, it, over, over every covenant, there would be a head, the person who is responsible for the keeping of the covenant terms, right? And this is the person that went first in leading and loving and serving and making sure that he, he was doing, he or she were doing their part to actually fulfill their end of the covenant, to guard it, to keep it. And over and over again in the Bible, it's gonna refer to Jesus as the capital H head of the church and the husband and the father as the little H head of the marriage and of the family. You just saw that, right? Your problem isn't with me if this is offensive to you. Your problem was with God. So you can take it up with him. I would encourage you to not do that. It doesn't go very well. But nevertheless, this is what it looks like to be. Uh, that it is a point of responsibility. Uh, and, and so the question is, okay, so what's the tone? It's Jesus, right? Any man, if you are in a position of authority, which if you're married, you are, you are in a position of responsibility, where do you derive that authority and that responsibility from? It's Jesus, meaning who's your standard? This is the scary part. It's him. And that's what Paul talks about. Ephesians 5, I think it's 25, we just read it. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the standard. That's the tone of headship, meaning anything that doesn't look like that, it falls short from the beauty of what God is getting at here. And it absolutely carries an idea of responsibility. This is why if you look at the creation story, uh, you know, God creates Adam first as head, Eve second as helper, stands them next to each other side by side, equal in value, codependent, uh, or not codependent, <laughs> interdependent. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Wow. I'm surprised none of you checked me on that. Don't, that's really bad. Not going well for a lot of us, right? But, right, co-equal in value, worth, and dignity, different in role and function. Eve sins first, right? What does she do? She goes and she eats the fruit. She brings it to Adam, and Adam sins. He eats the tree also, and God comes looking. Who does he come looking for, guys? He comes for Adam. Adam, Adam, where are you, Adam? Where's Adam? Hey, Adam, what are you doing? And that, I mean, think about that. This is why that's so good. Who, who sinned first? It was Eve. And what did Adam do? Fellas, Adam has done, he did the same thing that men have been doing ever since. God comes for Adam and he's like, Adam, what'd you do here? Where were you? And Adam's like, Hey man, her fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's bad strategy, guys. Don't do it. It never works out well with Jesus or with your wife. But this is what Adam does. He's like, no, it's her fault. She's the reason why everything went sideways. But nevertheless, God calls for Adam. Now, here's the thing. Men, if there is dysfunction, disunity, uh, if there is a lack of love, if there is a lack of spiritual engagement and development and growth in your marriage, in your family, in your kids' lives, Jesus shows up. He knocks on the door and he says, hey, where's the head? Where's, where's, where's the husband? Where's dad? We need to have a chat, right? Because both parties, husband and wife, are responsible for individual sin, but God has placed a greater layer of responsibility in, on, on the man as the head. It's an incredible point of responsibility. And this is, this is a fascinating observation of mine. I was thinking about this this last week. Uh, when I was a youth pastor here at this church, uh, you know, what was, what was so fascinating to me is you could nine times out of 10 tell what uh, uh, any of the kids' dads were passionate about by what they were passionate about. 
It was crazy. So you, you have a dad that's super vocal politically. He hates liberals. His kids would show up to the all-nighter with mullets and Donald Trump sleeping bags and flag pants. Not even kidding. It's crazy. Because why? Because our kids are passionate about what we're passionate about. Whereas at the contrast of that, if you have a husband, a father who's passionate about Jesus, who loves Jesus, who reads the Bible, who prays with and for each member of the family, who gets the family to church, right? Who is engaged. That guy oftentimes, most of the times, bar none, had the kids that were the most healthy, the most spiritually engaged, the most spiritually curious, which is why as the, you know, to the men here, let me just say this. The best thing that we can do guys for our homes, for our wives, for our children, for our family, you want to know what it is? Fall madly in love with Jesus. That's it right there. If I could just give you one thing and encourage you in a singular direction, it would be that fall madly in love with Jesus. Burn for God. Why? Because men who burn for God tend to not burn their families to the ground. And here's the, here's the big idea. Men are builders and they're breakers. That's just, that's just real. Amen, guys, would you agree with me? We just tend to build stuff or break stuff. Now, here's what you gotta do when it comes to marriage, when it comes to family, you gotta leave the Wreck-It Ralph hat off. You wanna build there. And how you're gonna do that, the easiest way, the most simple way that you can do that is you can let Jesus pastor you. You can live and have a tangible touch point of relationship with Jesus and he's gonna pastor you and love you and serve you and care for you and encourage you. He's going to place responsibility on you and encouragement on you. And so when you're not getting that, you come to him and he's going to fill you up and you can, listen, stuff might not be really good for you guys right now in your marriages, right? But God plus one is a majority. It is. It really is. It really is. And so you can step into a relationship with Jesus where you're going to be met with a lot of responsibility and a lot of encouragement at the same time. And so here's, here's a big idea for the guys. We get to be the pastor of our homes. You get to be the pastor of your family. Now, I love, I love being your pastor. I'm so grateful that you keep showing up and it's just amazing to me that you do because you're awesome and we're, we're not super awesome, but you keep coming back. So that's great. And, uh, you know, but like, I love being your pastor. I love that I get to serve you. I love every opportunity I get to talk with you. I wanna champion you. I wanna encourage you. I wanna constantly figure out, man, how can we equip you to do the work of the ministry? How can our staff get out of the way? And we empower you to do meaningful ministry here in our church and in our city. But you know who I love pastoring more? It's my family, right? And I'm not great at it. I'm learning, right? And, and, and here's the idea, guys. And this is, this is where I want to put some courage on you. You know what Jesus does when you fumble the ball? Because we all do. I do all the time, right? We all do. Here's what Jesus does. He doesn't come and look over your shoulder and berate you and talk down to you and make you feel like crap like your, your coach did, your little league coach uh, did when you were like 12 years old, who was also your dad, by the way. And that might be a father wound. We should pray for you and get you healed up from that. He doesn't do that. You wanna know what Jesus does? He comes and puts the ball back and puts it right in your hands again. He says, let's keep going. That's what Jesus does, right? And so you get to be that person in the context of your home for your wife, for your children. You get to pastor, lead, champion, serve, disciple. In fact, you know, Paul gets this idea in, in verses 29. Uh, he talks about how Jesus nourishes and cherishes his wife, the church, and that we as husbands are to reflect that to our wives, which is carrying this idea of the wife isn't lacking in any physical, emotional, or spiritual way. Right? In fact, there's this, uh, this, this one idea in the New Testament that shows up that wives in church, if you have a question, go ask your husband. Another idea that gets horribly misconstrued and misunderstood. But part of the idea there that Paul's getting at is the husband's got the answer. 
right? Which means that he is theologically rich. He's gone deep with God. He nourishes and he cherishes. It's this idea of just desiring her, pursuing her and his flourishing over his own. Now here's the idea there, guys, is if all we're doing, if all I'm doing is paying the bills, I horribly fail as head. It's not what it's about. That's a part of it, absolutely, but that's like a 20%, 10% piece of the pie. And there's this whole other reality of loving, of service, of sacrifice, of me going low and going first and finding, because here's the idea. The lower you go in love, service, sacrifice, and humility, the closer you get to Jesus. The closer you get to him. You wanna find him? He's in the lowest place. And he's like, hey, come down here. Right? Uh, let, me, let me show you what it's really like to love and to serve other people. Come and meet me down here. John 13, he washes the disciples' feet. That is our job. That is our, 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 our spiritual inheritance of what we get to bring to the home for their flourishing, for the wife's flourishing, for the children's flourishing. And now this is really important because what happens for many men is we abdicate that responsibility away. We abdicate it to the Christian school. We abdicate it to the church. We abdicate it to government. We abdicate it wherever. And God shows up and he says, hey, where's the head? I, I, this, is, this is your role. This, you, you, can, you can abdicate it, but you're still responsible before God, right? And so this is, this is the sin of many men. And so we end up saying stuff like this. And here's how to tell if this is you. I, as a man, as a husband, as a dad, don't need to be passionate about following Jesus because that's my wife's job. Abdicated responsibility. Uh, I, as a father, as a head, as a husband, don't need to get my family to church and champion them and disciple and whatever, all that sort of stuff, because my wife's gonna do that. We'll drop them off at a Christian school, which is great, by the way. Do that if you can at all possible. We've got some great local Christian schools, right? But here's the idea. All of that is meant to be supplementary to the influence of dad. That's the idea. It's all meant to be supplementary to the influence and the loving leadership of dad in the home. And the reality is everybody flourishes when men are held accountable to this and encouraged and championed into taking responsibility. In fact, Bradford Wilcox, he's a sociologist out of the University of Virginia, groundbreaking study. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I wanna nuance it out just a little bit more. He talks about how, you know, he did the ma this massive study on these different groups of people across the board. You want to know who the healthiest men were that had the healthiest families? Conservative, theologically speaking, Protestant married men who actually practice their faith, faith. Across the board, those are the healthiest guys who had the healthiest families. Now, this is important because you've heard this incredible lie of, you know, like, hey, you know, here's, it, the, the divorce rate is 50% in the church and outside of the church. Have you ever heard that before? You heard that, right? And so that's discouraging for everybody. It's discouraging for the non-Christian because it's like, man, you know, what do Christians have to offer me in my marriage? It sucks, they suck too. All right, and it discourages Christians because it's like, man, what does Christianity have to offer my marriage? Apparently nothing. But that is a horrible lie of a, of a statistic. How many of you know that there's a major difference between profession and practice, right? And, and, and so how these, how these researchers were conducting this research was basically like they would just go up to people and, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, let's talk about marriage and marital happiness and divorce and all this sort of stuff. And, and you know how you can, you can profess something that you don't practice. Let me give you an example here from my own personal life. Uh, I am a bodybuilder professionally and I am a dynamic spin class instructor. And you guys didn't laugh and that's really encouraging for me because apparently 
that's not too far of a stretch, but I just needed some encouragement, some affirmation, right? But you know, like I can, I can profess that and don't judge me because this is how I feel in the context of my heart. Who are you to tell me who I am and what I'm not? This is who I am. But here's the thing. If you follow me around for long enough, would you find enough evidence to convict me in court? No. You wouldn't, right? In fact, here's what happened. I'm so bad at this. My wife and I, we, uh, life just got so busy. I was like, man, I'm not making it to the gym anymore. I'm going this way more than this way now. And like, I need to do something about it. And uh, I, we're just too busy to go to the gym. So I'm gonna buy a home gym. So we did, we bought a home gym. We got this super cheap, you know, $800 elliptical thing off Amazon. That's horrible. It's, it's literally hell on earth, this thing. And it squeaks at you all the time. So you walk away with a headache. Then we bought it. And guess what we did with this home gym? It sits there in the garage and it doesn't get used. But you could walk by and see it and you might be like, oh, hey, that, you know, like that, this guy is probably pretty dedicated to their physical health and that's a good thing, but it doesn't ever get used. It's the same thing for many people. Oh, I got a Bible. I never read it though, but I got it. Like it's on the nightstand collecting dust, but I never read it. And so there's this massive discrepancy between practice and profession. And so what Bradford Wilcox said, he was like, okay, so let's talk about those who profess Christianity, but also who practice it. And look at this. This is what he found. I want this to encourage you. This is amazing. He found that these men are consistently more active and expressive with their children. How many, that's a good thing, right? We, we, need, we need dads that are more active and expressive with their kids. Better dads. That's a win for everybody. They're most likely to do positive emotional work in their marriages. Ladies, how many of you, that would be a really big win for you? Oh, my husband actually has a heart. <laughs> Go figure. I'll get him to church. Guys, that's great. You're going to develop that here. Statistically speaking, these guys are more consistently engaged emotionally in their marriages. Church attendance almost universally increases levels of paternal involvement and expressiveness amongst conservative Protestant men. Next slide. Let's just keep going through this. This is really good news. Wives report higher levels of happiness because of love and affection they receive from their husbands. Wives are more likely to report marital happiness with love and affection that they receive from their husbands if they attend church. Think about that. You want to be happier? Show up to church more, right? Let's, statistically speaking, that's where you're going to find it. Religious attendance is found to also translate to more empathetic behavior from married men to their children. This is the, get this, this is the group least likely to commit domestic violence. The safest Men are Bible-believing, church-attending, praying men, right? Safest group of men across the board. These, are, these dudes are more likely to spend time in youth-related activities. They hug their children more. They yell at their children less than other fathers. Come on. And that's why here, let me just champion you for a second. You men that are here, you're sitting next to your wives. You got your kids next to you. You are an absolute hero. Listen, you might not be doing everything well. I know I'm not, but you're here and you're showing up and you are putting yourself in your family in the safest realm possible. Listen, why is the church important? Boom, right there. I mean, come on, that's epic. And you are an absolute miracle and a hero because you are here right now. So let me just give you a few practical things to hang your hat on, guys, as far as what can we grow into to be a better head in the context of our marriage and family. Number one, we're going to pastor our wives and children as Jesus pastors you. How are we going to do that? We're going to build a relationship with Jesus through prayer, through study, through church, through small groups, through theological engagement. We want Jesus to actually pastor us and lead us so we can lead out of the overflow of that relationship. Number three, we wanna pray with and for each member of your family regularly. Oftentimes what happens for guys is we're like, I don't know how to pray. My wife knows how to pray. Man, hey, you know what? My kids pray even better than I do, so you guys can do that. Here's the deal. 
Pray badly, okay? Like, don't let that be an excuse. Just pray badly. Let the dumbness come out of your mouth and let everybody look at it. It's great for the whole family, and it's funny, and so just do it. But we want to pray with and for our family every, or regularly, as regularly as we possibly can. Number four, get your family to church consistently. Statistically, that's going to put you in the top 1%. Those four things right there, because Christianity isn't just a nice idea. It actually works gonna put you in the realm of the healthiest families on the planet. Isn't that good news? Like, can we just get pumped about that for a second? Guys, this thing actually works. Jesus works. And so, uh, you know, in this idea of church attendance, what's really important about this is often what happens is the stats here are completely clear. When women show up to church with the kids and dad doesn't come, 67% of those kids grow up and don't go to church. When you reverse that, Dad takes the kids to church. We can even take mom out of the picture. She doesn't even show up. 60%, 67% of those kids grow up and become regular church attenders. That is the weight of the responsibility that God has put on us as head. And of course, Jesus is gonna put responsibility on us and encouragement. So we've got the man as the head and Jesus is the standard. His voluntary death is the standard. We wanna use authority, how Jesus uses it to help, to love, to shape our wives and kids, to be clear representations of God, of the glory of God. Now, number two, let's talk about the wife for a second because we're an equal opportunity offender here. So ladies, I checked all of this with my wife and she's like, yep, really good. And so you can take it up with her. All right. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm playing the ignorance called, but card, but uh, let's talk about the ladies for a second. The man is the head. The wife is the helper. This is biblical language. Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, before you start throwing rocks, let me just tell you this. This is not a denigration. This is actually a position and status of incredible power and incredible strength. Notice who was the one that was deficient in the Genesis story. It was Adam, right? You know any guys? We need a lot of help, right? You know a man. Like he needs a lot of help. We need a lot of help. That's just a reality. And God, as he was creating mankind, he says, Adam is the deficient one. And so I'm gonna make Eve and station her next to him as helper, as co-leader to love and to serve and to care for uh, him and to help him accomplish his God-designed purpose in the world. So Adam was the one that was actually deficient. In addition to this, God hijacks that word, that name helper, He's there in the Hebrew and he uses it for himself in the context of his covenant relationship with his people. He says, I am your helper, O house of Israel, right? So he's literally sharing his character and his nature with you as helper. You get to the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, your helper, right? And so God is saying, listen, you through love, through sacrifice, through service, respect, honor, you are going to actually shape him, form him into becoming a clearer reflection of the glory of God. This is your call in the context of your marriage. Now, here's the thing, ladies, let me just say this from a husband, from a man perspective, from a man brain, because I know you don't have one of those and that's good. But here's the deal, right? You do not understand. And so I'm going to tell you this, you don't understand the power that you have over your husband. You just don't. And so let me tell you about this. You have the ability through your humility, your love, your service, the respect that you show him, the honor that you show him to either form him or deform him into the image of Jesus. That is literally how much power you have. This is not a position of incompetence. It's not a position of inadequacy or insufficiency. It is a position of incredible power and influence. And this is why I'm, I'm convinced that my wife unplugs my phone charger every day from my bedside and hides it elsewhere in the house because I 
ready to become more like Jesus in this way, but right? Because like, this is, this is your role in your marriage is to help him become more like Jesus. And this is really important because if it, when we see this happen often, if the husband isn't loving, serving, leading like Jesus, what does the wife end up doing as a strategy? I'm gonna talk down to you. I'm gonna speak little of you. I'm gonna mock you. I'm gonna talk about you behind your back with other people. This is the bitterness brigade, the gossip parade. Oftentimes in church world, we call this the women's small group, right? And so that's just, we just get together and we gossip and we talk about how horrible our husbands are. But here's the question, how do you talk about him? When he's not there, when he's there, how do you talk about him to your children? Oh, your daddy's such an idiot. He's such an idiot. He's so stupid. Like, look at this joke over here, right? You know what that's gonna do? That's gonna make him a dishonorable man. Why? Because there is life and death in your words. You are prophesying, right? You literally are prophesying death. And all the while, you're teaching your children. You wanna know what you're teaching them to? Dishonor dad, don't respect him, don't give any influence in your life, and don't honor authority, period, across the board. That's what, we're, that's what we're teaching our kids when we do that. And so how do you talk uh, uh, about him? You know, and, and here's the idea. I have never seen that strategy work, by the way. I've never seen that lead to health. You know, like this whole, I'm just gonna nag and complain. And the first thing that I say to him when he shows up is just beat you down and accuse you. It, it, guys don't operate like this. It's not after, okay, it's been six months of this. Now all of a sudden he's gonna wake up and, oh, Honey, I finally realized I'm a joke and I need to be better and I need to be a more honorable man and I've heard you and, and I'm gonna do much better, honey, dearest. That's not what happens, right? We know this. That's not how it works. In fact, ladies, here's a hack for you. Okay, you wanna hack? You wanna DIY how to improve your man, the dude that you're living with here as your husband, right? Here's how you do it. The quickest, most efficient way to get an honorable man, you wanna know what it is? Show him honor. The most efficient way to get a respectable man, a respectable man, is you respect him. You speak highly of him. You this is Jesus. Listen, both ways. This is true, husband and wife. If it's not in his mouth, not in Jesus' mouth, it shouldn't be in ours, right? If because discouragement, death isn't in his mouth. Berating, nagging isn't in the mouth of Jesus. And so this should not be present in ours. Jesus is always speaking life. And you, the reality is, if, if you're frustrated with the man that you're married to, you need to recognize you might have some responsibility with it, right? Because your words are powerful. Your presence in the home is powerful. Now, here's a part of the lie that many women believe. That means that I just have to sit back, take a back row seat, be submissive and quiet in the house mouse and never raise, you know, talk or confront sin or, you know, bring concern to the table or do any of that. Or I can't have a big personality. I can't be extroverted. And all of that is completely trash, ladies. But what it does mean is that you're gonna be a life-giving presence. Listen, your husband has a thousand voices of accusation in his life. He doesn't have much encouragement. Be an encourager. Be like, you got two choices in the context of your marriage. You can partner with the ministry of Satan or you can partner with the ministry of Jesus. Really practical here to, to just wrap this out. Uh, the, the, what does the, the respectful wife look like? It's three things. I got this from a really godly, awesome Christian white writer. And she talks about these three different ideas of it starts with a mind of respect. What comes to your head when you think about him, right? Disrespect, dishonor. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, 32, 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect. So what, do you, what comes to your mind 
mind when you think about him. This is where the renewing of the mind is important. You might be like, yeah, you gotta call out the gold in him. Here's the idea, gals. You gotta call out the gold. You might be like, you know, you know what? I see bronze at best. Like that is a short and a pathetic list. You just gotta affirm where you can. Hey, you know what? Thank you so much for putting the toilet seat down in the middle of the night so I didn't fall through the thing. Like I appreciate your effort here. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't wet when I sat down. Thank God, you know, you're amazing. You, it might be a short list, but you gotta start where you can. How do you think about him? He's an idiot, he's stupid. Or no, this guy is called to reflect the character and the nature and the glory of God. And in fact, what Jesus does with Peter, this is fascinating. Peter, he, he, you know, Jesus is like, hey dude, you're gonna deny me that you know me three times? You're gonna, worst failure of any human in human history. I know your guy might be jacked, you know, but not this bad. He literally denied Jesus three times. And Jesus knew that it was gonna happen. And you know what Jesus said to Peter? When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, you're, you're about to get a lesson in grace. You're gonna fall flat on your flipping face, Peter, and bust your nose and make a mess of yourself. But you know what I'm not gonna do when you get there, Peter? I'm not gonna throw shame on you. I'm not gonna throw guilt on you. I'm not gonna throw condemnation on you because, because I see your potential. You are the image and the glory of God. When you turn again, when you come back to grace, strengthen everybody around you and help them understand this is the grace of God. Be that kind of presence in the home. And how are we gonna do it? We gotta learn, I'm not gonna look at this person through the lens of what I actually see right now, the betrayal, the failure, whatever. I wanna learn to see them through the eyes of Jesus because then I can prophesy life. I can speak life. I can encourage and I can call higher. And that's how you're gonna get an honorable man. That's how you're gonna get a respectable man. And so the mind of respect translates to a heart of respect, meaning it shifts how you feel. Did you know that Jesus loves you on your worst day? That means that you can love your husband on his worst day, right? You can love your wife on her worst day because Jesus has a heart full of affection and love for us there. How to tell what, what you feel about your husband? It's by your words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How do you talk about him? And that's gonna translate to hands of respect through love, through service, through words of affirmation. Some guys, it's physical touch. Some guys, it's acts of service. Some guys, it's, you know, he's just so insufficient and uh, deficient in encouragement that you publicly affirming him as an awesome guy who loves and serves well is all that's necessary. Some guys are starving for this. Let me just tell you. Some men are literally starving for this and it doesn't take much, just a little bit of encouragement. Hey, I love you. I really do. How can I bless you today? How can I serve you today? How can I honor you today? You're, you're, you're amazing. God loves you. I don't love you, but I'm trying, right? Like, like it doesn't take a lot, okay? Right? And so it's gonna translate to hands of respect. Now, here's the thing. What I love about this, and I, just to wrap this up here, because we gotta get you out of here, um, because I can feel Ty Morgan, his eyes just like, you need to shut up, Taylor, get off the stage, you know? You just shut up and go away. But okay, so let me just finish with this. A couple things. There's no comprehensive list of what this looks like in the Bible, right? There, there's no, okay, here's, here's the loving husband. Bang, 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 bang. Here is the respectful wife who is helpful. Bang, 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 bang. It's not in there. Why? Because every person's unique. Every person's different. And, and so here's, here's the idea. Ephesians chapter five, I believe it's 21. Let me just, let me just 
roll out with this verse here, if we have it, Ephesians 5.21. Because uh, the question is, how are we gonna figure out how to do this well? Well, it's gonna be unique to your marriage. It's gonna be unique to your relationship. So Paul says this, before he gets into husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means, fellas, you don't get to decide how you're doing as head. She does. You, you, like she, you get a referee shirt and put it on her. Like if that's what you need for a visual reminder, you don't get to ref your own uh, conduct in the home. She does. She gets to say, "Hey, here's where you're doing great, and here's that's where she's going to help you become more like Jesus." And ladies, you go. You don't get to do the same thing. He gets to be the referee. And so what I did here, guys, is I I created some more questions here. And here's the thing: Holy Spirit tipped me off to this. I know it this week. Here's what he said: There are people who have not talked through these questions. So let me, let me just bring you through this really quick and encourage you to do this again because you're gonna get out of this what you put into it. These questions are structured in such a way where you're gonna be able to take these big theological ideas and concepts and niche them down into your marriage and into your relationship and actually get practical ne next steps because every guy is going to receive respect and disrespect differently. Every woman is gonna receive and uh, you know love and acts of kindness and help and, and uh, service differently. And so these are gonna help you actually begin to have that conversation. Okay, guys, we did it. Let's give a shout to Jesus. Four weeks till death, the marriage you long for. Would you stand with me? I wanna pray for us here before I get you out of here. Take a picture of this. Have a great date night. Go get some good food somewhere. And uh, these questions are really gonna help you move towards flourishing and ultimately the marriage you long for because we're constructing the marriage that God has designed. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless every marriage and family in this home. God, right now I just champion and speak life over every husband, over every father. And I'm so grateful that they're here. They're absolutely heroes. God, I pray that you would would, as you put responsibility on them today, that you would fill us with encouragement to meet the task at hand and to meet it well, hand in hand with Jesus. I thank you for every wife, every mother in this room today. Would you bless them, protect them? God, I pray that you would become uh, embodied in such a way in husband and wife that we would reflect your character and nature to each other and to the world around us, God, for your glory and your, the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey guys, we love you. Thank you for coming. If we can pray for you, we would love to do so. We're gonna have a prayer team off to my left. Otherwise, have a great day. Remember to be kind to those that God has placed around you. We'll see you next Sunday.